0: It's the Bits and Pieces podcast.
1: Hello and welcome everybody to Bits and Pieces for November 2023. And I'm joined again with James.
2: Hi, glad to be back.
1: We are, as usual, going to be dropping in on Holyrood and Westminster. But there is so much happening just now. Last month there was the party political conferences. But this month has just been an explosion of really good quality events taking place. They're all on themes that people care about. There's a mixed audience of people who just happen to be interested in those themes, but what has floated up out of all of them is that independence is necessary to resolve some of these issues.
0: So tell me, which conferences were on this month?
1: So the first event we're going to drop in on was the Festival of Survival, and that was looking at the twin crises of nuclear arms proliferation and the climate emergency. Unusually for a conference, and certainly on such serious subject matter, I was absolutely charmed when the chair, Lynn Jameson, started with a poem.
3: I'm going to start with Kathleen Jamie Armacher's poem, which she wrote after COP26. Um, I think some of you will know this poem, what the Clyde said. I keep the heat. I'm cool. If you asked... But you never ask. I'd answer in tongues. Hinton O'Lins. Kelvin. Nathan. Levin Card. But neutral. Balancing both banks equally. As I flow. Do I judge? I mind the hammer swing the welder's flash, the heavy steel-built ships I bored downstream from my city. And maybe I was a wee bit of a blether skite, guy fool myself when we seemed damn near unstoppable. Now, how can I stomach these storm rains? How can I slip quietly away to meet my lover, the wide-armed ocean, knowing that I'm a poison chalice that she must drain, drinking everything that you chuck away. So now, I'm a listener. Think of me as one long liquid ear, silently gliding by. I heard the world's voices. I heard folk free lands where my ships once sailed. I heard your beautiful promises. I am a river, but I can take a side. And hear this, from now on, all I want to keep afloat like we paper boats are the hopes of the young folk chanting at my banks. Fear in their spring bright eyes, and hear this fail them, and I will rise.
1: Okay. That was good, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Do you think a poem is a good way to start a conference? Or just abuse
0: that, you
4: said? It was my
1: favourite bit! <laughs> we are going to be doing a full YouTube show and podcast on the highlights from the festival. This is uh, one of the speakers who is an activist and former MSP, I think, Jean Urquhart, and she lives in Ullapool. And she was describing her activism in the 80s and how the local Ullapool group had decided to hold a march.
2: And Scottish CND had a wee leaflet to advise local groups how to organise a march. And it really didn't have much on it. It just said, out of courtesy, tell the police. Can you imagine? So I had a wee map of Ullipull and I went along, and our, our sergeant at that time, I think was from South East, I went in and said that we were going to have a march, and he looked completely dumbfunit. <laughs> a march, he said. I said, yeah, a march. And I said, here we are, we've got a plan here, and we're going to walk around. And he said, and how many people are coming on the march? And I said, well, that's what we don't know we would like to think there might be 150, but there'll definitely be three. (laughs) And he said, well, well, we'll take the car out anyway. (laughs) And he said, we'll follow at a safe distance if there's 150. And if there's just the three of you, we'll give you a lift. (laughs)
1: A delightful little um, story there she went on to make the point that you, know, you might be very small you might be local but do something if you can only make the sandwiches for the organizers of an event do that
0: for sure but I think the takeaway is that even if you're small in number you can still make yourself visible and especially if it is just the three of you you don't actually probably need to tell anyone you can march down the pavement
1: The next event we're going to drop in on, the Revive Conference. It was in Perth. It was chaired by Chris Packham. And the Revive Coalition started off as people who were concerned about driven grouse moors, raptor persecution, about animal cruelty. And it's now widened even more into land reform and social justice. So again, this was a really, really interesting day. We are going to do a video and podcast of highlights of this as well. But the clip I'm going to play is a little snippet from Chris Packham's opening speech. Now, I'll just say it's got a slight clicky, clippy quality to it. There's nothing we can do about that. That's just, just the way it was recorded at the venue. But I think you can still make out quite easily what's being said the Scottish Government's plans to ban snares, which I had originally dismissed as, why are you bothering with something like that? Isn't there more important things to bother about? And I've changed my mind on that following that conference. And in this bit, Chris Packham explains why in itself, it's not a huge issue, but it's symbolically, it's very important. And here's why.
5: We are precipitating a mass extermination event. Now, This is an extermination event because it's all down to us. Since 1970, we've lost 69% of the world's wildlife. We are one of the most nature-depleted set of nations anywhere on the planet. We have to collectively accept that at this point in time, we've largely been losing. Now that might sound demoralizing, but it isn't. I had the enormous privilege of visiting Dundragon Trees for Life project a couple of weeks ago. Absolutely fantastic. Early stages, but clear vision, clear tried and tested techniques being implemented, positive benefits for wildlife, the landscape, and the people that live and work in that landscape. Ditto, of course, larger projects have been running slightly longer like Cairns Connect. So here in Scotland, we are looking at real solutions being implemented. We're also here with an opportunity to celebrate some symbolic changes that we've instigated. The Scottish Government, thereby those who represent the people of Scotland, have intimated that in the very near future they will ban snares. Now, will it radically transform Scotland's landscape, the impact that that has on its wildlife? And the people that live there. Broadly, no. Will a ban on stairs have an impact on climate breakdown? Very, very, very indirectly. So, what is it important for? What is is strategic, symbolic importance says is that here we have a body of people who worked effectively to lead to a positive change. We have a receptive body of people, your government, that are going to instigate that change. It's part of a portfolio of positive movements. And I believe that as that portfolio builds and we get all of these small, significant advancements, they build significant force that will at some point cascade to broader change and then those impacts will be a lot more important something that i have to campaign for you see it's a fantastic achievement
6: uh yeah
0: i i get his ethos which is uh is very positive i think with things like this while very positive tend to fade from memory quite quickly (laughs)
1: Imagine campaigners wanting you to ban snares or grouse shooting or anything else approaching the Westminster government, they're not going to be remotely interested. Whereas in Scotland, we have got a government and largely because of the the green members of it, I I would think helps enormously, who's willing to listen to people saying, hey, this is not a good thing for people in Scotland, for the, the land that we've got, for the planet. And they're actually listening. So although it's a tiny victory, perhaps, that must hugely encourage the people who then have got more battles. On their list that they want to fight.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It sets a good precedent. And if from this a wave of momentum is spawned and start cascading into a much broader, as he says, portfolio of good essentially put into the world, then that's fantastic.
1: Another big event was the Breakup of Britain. It was a tribute to Tom Nairn. Again, we we're going to bring some podcast versions of that event because it was another full day event, it was full of great speakers, really interesting topics. The clip we've got for you is Leslie Riddick.
7: When you begin to look at you know the exceptionalism to current Britain, so first past the post: hooray! How exceptional. And how exceptional to be standing alone in Europe with Belarus, <laughs> yay. Um, the House of Lords, yay. It is the only legislator in the world that's larger than its elected one. And it's the second largest in the world outside the National People's Congress of China. <laughs> that's exceptional. And actually, let's all get smug. Local? What is that? Scotland has the largest local government in the world, except for Korea. So there's a template here that has to be broken, and a template that I think the Scots have been questioning on a whole lot of fronts. And there's the example that sits beside us. Because we have to think about what the alternatives might be. Well, you know, you don't have to look far at the risk of plugging a forthcoming film on Denmark. (laughs) Denmark. It used to control Norway, Sweden, Finland, Estonia, Iceland, Greenland and Schleswig-Holstein. It lost them all. It lost, finally, in 1864, a terrible war, with the very bad idea of invading Schleswig-Holstein and taking on Bismarck. And uh, he nearly annexed Denmark, Denmark nearly ceased to exist in 1864, very nearly, and actually it was only the Allies who didn't want Germany, Prussia, taking up more territory that stopped Denmark being wiped from the map. That is the kind of existential crisis the Danes faced in the late 1800s, and they got over it. They focused on themselves, they renovated their own thinking and country, and they are now the world's most energy self-sufficient country. Uh, they have so much going for them. They have a GDP far higher, sometimes double, sometimes treble that of Britain. And actually when you get beyond that, can you see that that entity, the whole of the Scandinavian countries, used to be under the control of one country. Have learned to become independent without fighting and now cooperate really strongly in the Nordic Council, Uh, to the extent that when people talk about the EU and the great advance of Schengen, for example, there was a Nordic travel area 40 years before Schengen, because it made sense. Again, that's
1: slightly affected by the acoustics of the the hall's recording equipment, I think. Leslie's film Denmark, well worth seeing.
0: I get the broad strokes of her point there, and uh, I agree that we definitely could change our, our model although i do sort of wonder how applicable it is to us it actually seems like it would be more applicable to say if england was trying to go independent because what she's described is a country which essentially did have a form of empire in that it ran all the other nordics and then through battles or various historical occurrences they all split off from it whereas from our point of view we are one of those external colony type things so unless she's inciting us to go to battle with England.
1: <laughs> I don't think she's going down that route. I think, well, remember, this came from the conference about the breakup of Britain. There was a perspective of um, what would this mean for England as well, you know, for all four countries of the, the UK. But I think the thing I took from it was that idea that Scandinavia is a collection of sovereign countries that no longer, you know, rule each other although there's been various permutations over the years. They're just a cooperative group of countries that gain something from being known as Scandinavia and working together, but equally are quite free to go and do anything else they want to do. Britain as a term like Scandinavia, where it doesn't imply that one country is 85% of the whole therefore makes all the decisions. If we could move to more Scandinavian relationship, that would be a better outcome for Britain.
0: Those Scandinavian countries can talk to each other as equals. They don't have to ask each other permission before they debate something.
1: Yes, absolutely. And the fourth event that I went to this month was Our Star in Scotland. This is part of a tour organised by the European Movement in Scotland with a beautiful star sculpture and it looks like our star off the EU flag. We went to the event at the Stirling Smith and it was a really nice afternoon. The clip that I've chosen was actually a former MEP called Julie Ward. When she was in the Parliament, had been uh, working on the redesign of the Erasmus programme. I didn't realise that actually it was much wider than just a thing for students to exchange. So here's her explaining what actually the Erasmus scheme is.
8: Erasmus Plus, as it now is, is a whole range of different programmes around youth and education and lifelong learning. It's not just a programme for universities to send their brightest students to study in other countries it is also a program for the marginalized people and some of the best erasmus projects that i saw were projects for people with learning disabilities people with autism for people who had failed at school for people who were in trouble with the police for people who felt a bit other lost actually and that's what we've lost not just the university program but the Erasmus program as it is now is subsumes all those wonderful youth in action programmes that I was involved in, but also um, lifelong learning programs for people in workers' education, in trade unions. For teachers to go and learn from other teachers, from linguists to learn about languages and how languages are taught and spoken. So it's this incredible space for sharing best practice. And for Boris Johnson to be in Westminster, in the Houses of Parliament, in January twenty twenty, I think it was, and to say, "Oh, we will make sure that young people have a class And then to take it away from them is the cruelest, most heartless, most selfish thing that could have happened. Because it doesn't just affect the brightest people who maybe still might find routes to go and do that in some other ways if their parents can afford it. It actually takes away something from the young people who don't have opportunities. And they are really seriously missing out.
0: You're listening to Bits and Pieces.
1: Remember before we had ferries for everybody to complain about? There was a time when we had trams that everybody complained about. A public inquiry was set up in 2013 to find out what had gone wrong with these trams, and it is just reported. We're going to jump to Holyrood now and listen to Mary McAllen give a very quick summary of whose fault it was all along.
9: The report also outlines ten headline causes of failure, which contributed to the delays and cost overruns associated with the project. Nine of these relate directly to the actions of the City of Edinburgh Council and its arm's-length delivery body, Ty, with the tenth and final cause only relating to Scottish ministers. Indeed, the Chair, Lord Hardy, is unambiguous, noting in a video statement that he produced alongside the report that, and I quote, Ty's failures were the principal cause of the failure to deliver the project on time and within budget. And he adds that the City of Edinburgh Council must, and I quote, also share principal responsibility with Ty for the delays in the design. This reflects the fact that responsibility for delivery of the project, including procurement and risk of any cost overruns, was solely, and rightly, for the City of Edinburgh Council. Setting aside for a moment the fact that this Government was uh, very clear at the time about the risks inherent with the project, and actually that it was others represented in this Parliament today who voted the project through,
1: So I don't know if you remember the time when the uh, trams were being built? I do, yeah. My uh, most clear
0: memory of objections to them was I think it was I was walking through Waverley to get on a train and there was a choir there singing a sort of anti-trams
1: playlist. (laughs) Well I have been on the trams to the airport actually I thought they were fine and of course every European city with all the fantastic transport systems that we are really envious of uh, most of them have trams in the mix so it's good that we've got them. There you go. There was the, the Scottish Government, after 10 years, finally able to say, no, it wasn't our fault that it all went horribly wrong and took twice as long and cost a lot more. It's a bit of a theme that the Scottish Government of whatever colour gets blamed for anything that might go wrong. And we've seen that most recently with the, um, the absolute pylon to discredit the deposit return scheme, led by the gleeful chair of the Net Zero Energy and Transport Committee, Edward Mountain, the next clip comes from that committee and at this time another um, area that it falls within the responsibility of the Green Ministers and it's to do with the circular economy. At the most recent committee hearing, there was an evidence session with experts in the field of circular economy. And part of the discussion, there was very useful explanation of this hierarchy of activities that can be taken. And as a country at the moment, we're still puddling around the lower rungs of the ladder, but the real advantages are going to come when we lift our sights and move higher up. So very interesting discussion, well worth listening to the, the whole committee meeting, actually.
10: The fear I would have is that this bill will do a lot in favor of recycling, but no more than that, and I've said that before, and I just want to make the point of, uh, give some real tangible examples of that. So sepa list 177 local waste and recycling centres. The language we use there, um, you know, the, the fact that they're waste and recycling, <laughs> not resource and reuse, but I'll move beyond that quickly. We know of four of them, four out of 177, that have a co-located reuse facility there. Um, Why not all of them? Greece has passed legislation that says any town with more than 50,000 people in it should have a local authority um, reuse facility. That can be in partnership with the charity, they don't have to run it, um, but there has to be one in in a town of that size. The benefits of it, job creation. I'm a member of uh, Reuse, the European body uh, um, for for reuse. Uh, For every 10,000 tons of waste that goes to landfill, creates six jobs to incineration, one job, to recycling, 36 jobs. Great, let's recycle. Hang on, for reuse, up to 296 jobs, depending on the material stream. IT, for example, being higher than than textiles. So it's an opportunity to create jobs. Those jobs are more skilled. It takes more uh, skill to repair a broken laptop than to strip it down. I think we can just think that through ourselves and how we would go about doing it. I wouldn't be able to repair one. I could break it up. Um, It has social impact, so the Charity Retail Association for the UK published a report just a couple of weeks ago saying that for every pound invested in charity reuse, charity retail, your local charity shop, you get £7.35 return on that investment for social impact in that, that area. And so that's all on the social side. It's good for people. It's obviously good for Planet. It is terrible for the environment to build a product. Never use it once, or only use it once, and then because it's got a broken something, not repair it, not reuse it. In terms of the whole system that we have, it is geared towards recycling. We're not getting spectacular levels of recycling, 43% doesn't compare well with Wales, for example. Um, I think the best way to turbo that change is to actually have a top-down approach. And I know some of you are concerned about fly-tipping, Mr. Mr. Fraser there, here for that, but actually one of the reasons we have fly-tipping is because we have actions at the bottom of the waste hierarchy, sticks more than carrots, a landfill tax for example and the way around that is to not do the right thing with that resource and take it to the local authority site it's to, to throw it into a beauty spot so you know a top-down approach to the waste hierarchy actually helps with litter and and fly tipping too because we change our relationship with stuff we see them as reusable refillable um and that that item has more value
1: it's almost the nudge principles that you want you've got to make it easier for people to do the right thing and harder for you to do the wrong thing and the the default Tory attitude seems to be more punishment, more rules and actually what that does is it just encourages people to work around them and do the wrong thing. There's also quite an interesting thing about consumption, reducing consumption in the first place and encouraging firms. If they're responsible for the disposal of a product at the end of life, maybe it'll encourage them to make the product in the first place in a way that it can easily be repurposed or recycled or reused when it comes back to them. So there's a lot of really exciting stuff in this, but it is going to require a bit of a a change of mindset. And, say, for a government that had something as simple as a deposit return scheme spiked, this much more ambitious scheme going much further I think it's going to have a lot of opposition and I just hope that the government is investing much more this time in getting the general public aware and on board because that way at least if they're backing what the government's trying to do they've more chance of it going through when you work in retail can you do you think that um, reuse is going to be a can you see that being a challenge in in the, the retail world
0: It certainly will be. I think actually one of the major oppositions to it will be from the the company and the business side of it because the current default marketing for a lot of these places is, we know you bought product of ours, we know it still works, but we also made new product. We need you to buy that, Mm -hmm. so old product bad. You need new product and that's the marketing and the default advertising. So they would push back on this, I think, way strong. As we know, the government is often lobbied by these groups. They would probably see it in their best interest to block it from that point of view as well.
1: Especially when you've got a cost of living crisis, we're coming up to Christmas, you've got people looking for cheap items that they can afford to buy. It's maybe not as attractive. I mean, that's the kind of society that we've been used to, you know, cheap Clothes, wear once, throw away cheap, single-use plastics, just all sorts of disposable stuff, and and the businesses have been built around you know resupplying the constant pile of cheap things for people to use once and throw away. And really, the maybe that's how they market it. Say this is a return to old-fashioned values, and try and get the uh, the generation who like Spitfires back on on board. Now back to the government strikes back. This time. Perpetually angry man Russell Finlay tried to get a good dig in this time about the census. Russell Finlay.
11: Thank you for that answer. The SNP completely botched Scotland's census and did so because of their ideological obsession with diverging from the rest of the UK. It will therefore be more difficult to plan for the delivery of public services. And national records of Scotland say that lessons will be learned from this fiasco. Surely there's one main lesson to learn, and that is in 2031, the census should be UK-wide. So will it be? And that's a yes or a no. Thank you. Thank you. So the, the NRS is keen to reflect lessons uh, learned, including how
5: the results now being published are received by users. It is committed to set uh, these out upon conclusion of the 2022 Census Programme in an evaluation report laid before Parliament by the end of 2024. But I am sure Mr Finlay will be delighted to learn that the Office of Statistics Regulation has awarded Scotland's census output with national statistics designation based on the quality, good practice and comprehensiveness of the statistics. Achieving national statistics designation means the expert independent UK regulator has confidence in the statistics that NRS have produced and that Scotland's census forms an integral part of the statistical system in the United Kingdom.
1: Do you think he enjoyed giving that answer?
5: Always nice when you can get a good slam
0: dunk in there.
1: (laughs) And the third of our Scottish Government Strikes Back, we've got Keith Brown positively relishing the fact that the UK Government's Rwanda plan has been ruled illegal.
4: Our approach to migration and refugees should have dignity, fairness and respect at its core, as opposed to the UK Government's hostile environment approach, which we currently have to endure. Yesterday, the UK Government's plan to send asylum seekers to Rwanda was ruled illegal by the Supreme Court. Can the First Minister provide any information on any assessment of these plans by the Scottish Government? Can he also confirmed that more than £140 million pounds of taxpayers' money, including Scottish taxpayers' money, has been squandered on this illegal scheme? And can he confirm whether he's heard a single word of criticism from any Tory MSP on this huge waste of taxpayers' money on this unworkable, scandalous and
11: illegal scheme?
4: First Minister on matters for which the government
11: is responsible. All, all I heard, I'm afraid, is when Keith Brown was speaking, uh, a whole bunch of groans from Tory MSPs as he mentioned, of course, the need for a humane asylum system here in the UK. And that's exactly what we need. We need a humane system that doesn't leave asylum seekers stuck in destitution for years without the right to work. And we recently launched our paper on migration in an independent Scotland, which sets out our approach to migration based very much on the values of dignity of fairness and respect. Migrants who come to this country, they contribute more than they take. They bring skills, they bring experience, which greatly benefits our economy and enhances the diversity of our society. The UK government's policy of sending asylum seekers to Rwanda is morally repugnant. It's now being confirmed as unlawful too. This policy should be consigned to the dustbin of history and have no place in a modern and humane society.
1: Slightly outside of Hollywood... It's sometimes interesting to see how Scotland is viewed from outside of the UK. And there is a um, a YouTube political commentator from Ireland. Now, he's improbably named Maximilian Robespierre. I'm not convinced that's his real name. His opinion on the Scottish government, in particular Stephen Flynn he was referring to, he said was like a breath of fresh air.
4: Stephen Flynn, the leader of the House of Commons for the SNP, seems to be the only party at the moment that are willing to talk about the problems of Brexit. But more than that, his party stands somewhat alone in not just rejoining the EU, but being more open on immigration, something, sadly, Labour have been running away from. Here he explained what was necessary in order to grow the economy, and it's to welcome workers from abroad who can contribute as taxpayers, but also to improve the trading relationship with the UK's biggest market. Stephen is a breath of fresh air. Have a listen to this.
12: There's perhaps three or four things that we could and should do. Now, they may not be popular with members on certainly the government side and indeed some on the official opposition side, but they are necessary because all of us, I think, would agree that in order to have economic growth, what you need and what you have to see is the tax base expanded. So the easiest way to do that is to actually increase working age migration Into these aisles. But beyond that, it's to ensure that the businesses that we all want to see thrive are able to export directly to the biggest markets possible. In our case, there's one sitting just across the channel, the EU single market, Mr. Speaker. And I think we should be a bit more robust and confident about saying that not only do we need more migration on these aisles, we need access to that EU single yeah, yeah, market. Yeah, yeah. And Mr Speaker, the, the argument that the Prime Minister would put forward would be that the agreement, the trade deal that was reached with our friends in Asia is the start of something better. Well, how do we look and that trade deal is worth 0.08% of GDP? So they would need 50, 50 of those trade deals just to match the 4% hit caused by leaving the European Union
4: there you have it. Now, what's very interesting about this is not just the talk about rejoining the European Union and talking about the damaging impact Brexit has had, but also about immigration. It's one of the only parties, maybe with the exception of the Green Party, that is talking about immigration in a positive way. The Labour Party have been talking about how they need to bring down immigration and have to focus more on more jobs for British people. The Tories, of course, are anti-immigration. But if you want to have a progressive society, if you want to have a robust economy, if you want to have a booming economy, you need to be more open to immigration. You need to be allowing businesses to access the workers they need. If they can't find them in the local area, they'll have to find them further afield. And if you have a society that is open to immigration, you're going to get the best people coming. You're going to attract investment and you're going to grow the economy. The Tories want to go in the opposite direction. They want to close the border when it comes to people, not so much when it comes to goods and checks, but when it comes to people, they want to keep as many of them out. The Tories are, of course, moving in the direction of UKIP. And it seems the Labour Party don't want to talk too much about immigration which is disappointing, to say the least, because an open society that welcomes people is going to attract the best and is going to attract investment, and that will grow your economy. Now, when it comes to Brexit, the SNP can do very little. They have no power over the Tory government and they'll have no power over a Labour government. They can try and lobby and pressure a future Labour government, be more aligned with the EU, to work closer with the EU, but their hands are pretty much tied. But I hope that they are able to lobby somewhat and perhaps push this narrative that immigration is not something to be feared, immigration is not something negative, and we need to stop listening to people like Nigel Farage.
0: You're listening to Bits and Pieces.
1: You'll remember from the SNP conference recently that the motion about the route for independence was amended to ensure that it included asking for additional powers coming to Scotland, one of which was employment law, Kirsten Oswald in Westminster, making that point to Kemi Badenoch. Let's see what kind of response she got.
5: MP Spokesperson, Kirsten Thank you.
1: Mr. Speaker, the UK Government's Inclusive Britain Update Report acknowledges the value of measuring the ethnicity pay gap. They have published guidance for employers, noting that employers can use ethnicity pay gap calculations to consider evidence based actions to address any unfair disparities. But despite that, the UK Government won't legislate to mandate reporting. So, since employment law is a reserved matter, will the Minister urge her Government to do Do the right thing and mandate ethnicity pay gap reporting or urge devolution of employment law to Scotland so the Scottish government can Absolutely not. Uh, This is something that we will not be devolving. Fairly clear response there. I
0: mean, it wasn't ambiguous, that's
1: for sure. (laughs) I quite enjoy Deirdre Brock taking on Penny Mordaunt, so let's see what their duel is about this week.
5: SNP spokesperson Deirdre Brock.
1: Yeah. Uh,
6: Mr. Speaker, before the Leader's rapid rise to her current role, she briefly <coughs> served as Minister for Women and Equalities. There is, believe it or not, still such a role in this Tory government. Now, I raise this because there have been some absolutely shocking insights into this government's attitudes to women and equalities recently. They give us an opportunity to assess her government's record, and a spoiler alert for the Leader, it is grotesque. First, we had the stomach churning misogyny, the language and behaviour towards women described by witnesses at the COVID inquiry. Even the leader will find it hard, I imagine, to defend the routine and disgraceful attacks on women in a government in which she served. It told us so much. We then had the United Nations rapporteur on extreme poverty and human rights Olivier de telling her government its record on poverty was, and I am quoting, simply not acceptable and violating international laws. Now That surprises no one who sees the effects of her government's cruel policies day in and day out. Then the former Tory Chair, her colleague, joined the fray. She said that the party she was once so proud of, uh, to be a member of, had a rot at its heart, a rot at the heart of government. So what we are talking about, Mr Speaker, is this Tory government's values. And those values are not Scotland's values. The values that suggest the way to help the homeless is banning charities from supplying tents to rough sleepers, because it is a lifestyle choice to be homeless, isn't it? Comments so misjudged that even the Prime Minister was embarrassed. values that say we don't care if we break international laws on poverty and the human rights of the poorest. The values that say that women can be dismissed in the foulest way imaginable as a part of normal behaviour. Simon Case, the country's most senior civil servant, said he had never seen a bunch of people less well equipped to run a country, and he should know. So can I ask the leader if we can have a debate on this Tory government's values and what 13 years under this, and I quote again, brutal, useless government has done to progress women inequalities and the interests of the most vulnerable amongst us in this far-from United Kingdom?
13: Uh, well, I thank the, uh, the Honourable Lady for her questions.
6: I think
13: that the powerful words of Susie Flinton, who is one of the Covid-bereaved families this week, should give us all pause for thought in this place. Uh, and that is why uh, this government has placed professionalism
1: and care of each other at the heart of what we do. Professionalism and care of each other. Your brain can't even comprehend it, can it? Thought for once she was going to say something reasonable, but no, shocking, shocking nonsense.
0: Yeah, it started off as a deflection and then just turned into, how can I somehow make a positive out of this?
1: <laughs> the Scottish Affairs Committee, I often can't bear to listen to at all, especially if Alistair Jack is appearing, but this month they have started a new inquiry, they're looking at research in Scotland. And they had, again, three witnesses talking about the state of academic research in Scotland. And it seems there's something of a success story
5: basic things that we could ask when it comes to science in Scotland is that we're unique historically and reputationally as a centre for science because of the Enlightenment and all the fantastic inventions that we've seen throughout the centuries. Is this a reputation that is still deserved? And we'll start with you Professor Boswell with that one.
14: Thanks very much. Absolutely it is deserved. So. Science in Scotland and research in Scotland is an absolute powerhouse uh, for Scotland. Punches well above its weight is a real asset and a driver of innovation, economic growth. Um, so while Scotland comprises 8.2% of the UK population, it comprises 11.4% of its researchers, um, uh, measured by the return to the last research excellence framework. So you know. A, 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 ...a very high number of researchers, and those researchers are producing outstanding research. So, again, based on the last REF of 2021, 85% of the research that was submitted was judged to be world-leading or internationally excellent. Um, And not least, that leverages huge return on investment. So, for every pound of money invested by Scottish Government, um, we see a return of £8 in terms of benefits to the UK economy. So it's, it's, it's a huge asset to Scotland and we are rightly very proud of it.
1: That was very positive what she said and I didn't realise that we were doing quite so well in research but the thing that caught my attention was right at the end when she said for every pound spent by ScotGov, it yields £8 pounds to the UK economy. So Scotland's putting the money in and the UK is getting the money out. The, the King's speech took place this month. It was just the King doing a party political broadcast on behalf of the Tory party. Uh, consensus seems to be there was very little in it, if anything, for Scotland. Neil Hanvey probably summed it up.
15: There's not really uh, an awful lot to talk about in this Queen's uh, King's speech, rather, and there's certainly not a lot um, to encourage the people of England, Wales, Ireland or indeed Scotland and there's really nothing in the King's speech for Scotland other than more pain Um, the title of this debate, Making Britain a Clean Energy Superpower the question immediately springs to mind, well that sounds grand but it won't help the people who are struggling to pay their energy bills and what cost to Scotland? The Government's North Sea Transition Authority is only really concerned with the transition of Scotland's wealth south into His Majesty's Treasury. In 2014, we were told, your oil is running out. You need the broad shoulders of the United Kingdom. Well, those broad shoulders were built on the poverty and deprivation of generations of Scots, and that is a price we are still paying. It often is said, and the member on the front, the front bench from the SNP said it today, energy-rich Scotland and fuel poor Scots. So let's just have a look at that. Energy-rich, well, there's no doubt that Scotland has vast energy wealth. The, uh, according to the OBR, as of April 2023, the projected cum- cumulative tax receipts from North Sea Oil and Gas for the year 2022-23 to 23 was £11 billion. And throughout my lifetime, Scotland has bankrolled the UK Treasury and global corporations to the tune of billion upon billions of pounds. In 2019, oil and gas production in Scotland accounted for 82% of the total UK production. By the year 2030, Scotland will be sending south 124 billion kilowatt hours of energy, all for nothing. That's 12.5 times the amount of energy that Scotland requires. For 8.1% of the UK population, Scotland is responsible for almost a quarter of the UK's green energy production. 85% of its hydro production, 82% of its oil and gas, 90% of its surface fresh water and 50% of the world's tidal stream capacity. But we have fuel poor Scots. In 2019, a quarter of Scottish households were estimated to be living in fuel poverty. I spoke to Energy Action Scotland yesterday and as of the 31st of October 2023 fuel poverty now sits at a disgraceful 34% in energy rich Scotland one in three households live in fuel poverty that's why in a Tory made cost of living crisis independence is the only urgent priority for the people of Scotland
1: it's hard to disagree with that at all, isn't it? It is outrageous.
15: I think it's one of the key messages we need
0: to get out there for independence. We need to get it to all levels.
1: Last month, we covered the SP and the Green Conferences. Uh, this month, we're going to look in on Alex Salmon's speech at the ALPA Conference. And it seemed to be a speech offering an olive branch, perhaps. Let's have a listen.
16: I want to talk to you a bit about ALPA policy proposals. You know, I have been sitting in, the, uh, in the, the chair here, along with uh, Tasmina and the party chair and your, your other MPs. and, uh, and I have been interested in the number of people coming to the rostrum, people I did not know, and speaking so well. Uh, and That, strangely enough, is a very good thing. If <laughs> you know, somebody who you do not know speaks very well, you can say, ah, that is a sign of a party which is growing, growing in confidence, growing in eloquence. So I think at this conference, I can see the party coming of age in policy platform terms. Now in the last two years, we've established our credentials as a social democratic party in the mainstream of the Scottish political tradition. We are Scotland's democratic party, failing an elected head of state and repudiating the patronage and privilege of the British state. We are Scotland's radical party We want to see Scotland's resources used for the benefit of the people and developed in a manner compatible with the future of the planet. Above all, we are Scotland's independence party with our strategy of crystal clarity principle compared to the muddled equivocation of the new SNP. I think at this conference we're moving forward again. Thanks to one of our newer activists and newer members, the outdoors icon, Cameron McNeish, we have the beginnings of a a radical land policy which can tackle the age-old injustice of the concentration of land ownership in the hands of chinless aristocrats and faceless investors. (laughs) We also have the proposal on our agenda for a guaranteed mother's income, not just a proposal to bring economic justice to hard-pressed families, but to start to tackle the underlying social problems because chains of poverty are imprinted in the early years of child development. Thirdly, I I was actually pleased to see the First Minister return to my own policies of council tax freeze this year. Indeed, we proposed it on a Friday and Hamza announced it three days later. You know, Hamza used to write my speeches, now I'm writing his. However, I also wanted to return to a policy I negotiated 10 years ago from Westminster, which hasn't for some reason been used over this last decade. And that's the ability of the Scottish Government to issue its own financial bonds on the international marketplace. On our agenda at this conference, we have a developing transport strategy. Why don't we add to that that among the first Scottish bond issues should be project finance to dual the A9 and the A96 In line with the commitments made by my administration and betrayed by recent SNP Governments. The SNP Government I led built the Fourth Crossing, the Aberdeen Peripheral Route, completed the M74, the M8 and the M80, and to serve this great conurbation of Glasgow, and we built a railway to the borders. I'm seriously scratching my head to think of any major transport initiatives and projects since. And it's time on the A9 for the Highlands of Scotland to have its turn of a modern transport infrastructure. I want to talk to you a bit about our party. You see, I believe that Alapa is the last best hope for independence in this generation. We have a clear goal to make a substantial breakthrough at the next Scottish elections. And given that the SNP have abdicated their leadership of the independence movement, our intervention in next year's general election will be widespread. However, to achieve this breakthrough, we need recruits from across the political spectrum, and in particular from the SNP itself. And I'll let you into a secret. You don't make people come and join you by beating them over the head and telling them how right you are and how wrong they have been. Social media is a great tool for spreading a political message, but as an instrument for political conversion and conversation, it sucks. Now Alba, Alapa has an X factor. We have three Ps, principle, policies, and people. But to achieve our objective, we need another, and that is perspiration. We need to spend less time online, and more time on the doorsteps. We need street warriors for ALAPA, not keyboard ones. And we need to extend the hand of friendship who are only now facing the dawning realization that they have been strung along for almost 10 years by the SNP leadership. You know, there's no one in this hall, perhaps no one in this country has more reason to feel resentful of the current leadership of the new SNP than I do. They are a shower. But within that party, there are many fine nationalists and plenty of fellow Scots. We need to enlist their help for Alapa to break through and win. There's an old Corrie song that I love, Scotland will flourish. I like it a lot I particularly like the line which says, Scotland will flourish with an eye to the future and a heart to forgive. Let that be Arpa's motto, an eye to the future and a heart to forgive. We forgive because we have our eyes on the future independence of our country. Independence always and forever.
0: What
1: did you make of that?
0: Uh, It sounded like a poaching campaign, essentially.
1: (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, to me, he seemed to spend the first half of the speech criticising the Scottish government, the SNP, specifically the SNP leadership, criticised their policies, he criticised their record in government, and cast himself as the the victim of the, the SNP. And Yet, magnanimously, he was going to rise above that and forgive them. I don't know, neither of us are SNP members, but if you were an SNP member listening to that...
7: Well, it depends,
0: because you have to bear in mind that there's different frames of mind within there as well. What he's essentially trying to speak to is the members who are frustrated with their own party and probably do think it needs to be more radical and various times in there he he quite literally said he needs people from that side to be on board with his party and essentially that's what I mean by a poaching campaign. Probably trying to capitalise on the fact that there has been some recent defections and sort of trying to get some momentum going.
1: For sure, it's true. If, if Alpa want to get more votes, the most likely place they're going to come from is people who are currently voting SNP because of the the independence question. They, they are taking a slightly less progressive stance, I think, than the SNP, so it's perhaps more of a, a home for people for whom the SNP MP is a little bit too left-wing, maybe. However, I mean, it's always welcome to hear There's, there's a forgiveness in the air. That sounds like a good thing. And I particularly think he's right to exhort people to resist the temptation to be keyboard warriors, because we know that that can encourage people to say things on keyboard that they wouldn't necessarily say to your face. And that would apply to people of all parties. But then we had this.
9: First Minister Alex Salmond has launched legal action against the Scottish government over its investigation into harassment complaints against him. The Alba party leader is seeking damages and loss of earnings. He's accusing senior Scottish government officials and his successor Nicola Sturgeon of misconduct in public office. Hamza Youssef says the government will robustly defend itself. Does that sound like forgiveness to you?
1: No, it strikes
0: me that he's almost trying to set in motion a chain of events. In fact, it kind of links into the previous thing, which I described as a poaching campaign, which is it makes it way easier to accept and indeed create defectors if you also make it so that uh, being part of that party you're trying to poach from is seen as being sort of morally bad. And if he can in some way stir that up with starting a legal battle, then... Maybe that's all part of the plan.
1: Complete coincidence, possibly, but... Yeah, no, it's uh,
12: it's a strange one.
1: And just to finish us off this month, Queen Elizabeth House in Edinburgh, or sometimes known as the Colonial Governor's Mansion, is becoming a natural focal point for protest activities it certainly isn't used much for the UK government that's for sure and this week there was a protest from radical independence campaign and on the same day there was also a protest choir this was protesting the the UK government's failure to back a ceasefire so we're just going to play out with a couple of the songs from the choir my name's Margaret Bremner
15: hello Margaret hi there and you've got here for a reason
1: Yes, we have. We're here because this
13: is the home of the UK government in Scotland and we are so saddened and angered by the UK government's refusal to support all campaigns to, get, to urge for a ceasefire in, in um, Palestine and Israel. So we're here to mourn the dead, to grieve, to sing in solidarity with those who have lost members of their family and to, I suppose, express our outrage at the UK government.
15: Are you a formal group, Margaret, or are you just people who have got concerns and want to express them?
13: We're just people who've got concerns and wish to express them. Some of us belong to a group called Protest in Harmony, which is a a local uh, singing group, but we basically are concerned individuals. We feel there is a time for marching, a time for shouting, and a time to stand And just acknowledge how awful it is and to allow a space to feel those emotions.
17: KILL! Yeah.
1: to listen to that and that heartfelt performance in the cold November wind maybe brings us back round to where we started this podcast that uh, get out there and do what you can we'll be back again at the end of December till then thanks for listening and we'll catch you later bye now
4: bye
0: you've been listening to Indie Jigsaw Bits and Pieces